Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Post-Presidential Money Grab. The date, October 2020. Before we begin, I again want to announce that the conservative historian book, A Collected Works, is available for sale. Just go to Amazon, type in conservative historian collected works and you should get to the page you can get it in either hardcover or kindle versions and now on to our podcast in a 2015 piece in the saturday evening post writer jeff nilson comments on the financial status of thomas jefferson our third president upon his death in 1826 quote Jefferson had spent his final months trying to free his estate from debt before he died. According to Thomas Jefferson Randolph, his grandson, the former president's debts exceeded over $100,000. And it should be noted that that $100,000 in 2020 money is probably something close to $2 million. In his biography of the third president, Historian Joyce Appleby described his final days as, quote, loaded down with a battery of bank debts, unquote. His successor, James Madison's final days, were depicted by writer Drew McCoy as, quote, amid a sea of personal financial troubles that threatened to engulf him, unquote. John Adams, the only non-Virginian of the first five presidents, did not die penniless thanks to his son. Quote, At his death, John Adams was able to bequeath land and books to start a school in his town, Quincy, Massachusetts. Years before, he had faced financial ruin when his London bank collapsed. Fortunately, his son, John Quincy Adams, came to his rescue by selling one of his houses and cashing in several investments. By his action, he left his father free of debt and still in possession of about 275 acres of land, unquote, adds Nilsson. There are those among the left, especially the 1619 Project writers, who have attempted to tie the economics of slavery to capitalism itself. It is hard to discern an economic system more opposed to coerced labor than capitalism. Slavery trapped the southern economy into an economic doom loop from which it never really recovered until the inception of the Civil War. It is not a coincidence that Northern presidents, such as John Quincy Adams and Martin Van Buren, though not wealthy, did not die in debt either. Yet for a considerable period, especially in the early Republic, the presidency, and especially the vice presidency, was a terrible way to make money. The challenge for these presidents, unlike the present day, was a lack of mechanism or platform for them to alter their financial fortunes. Additionally, the size of government in the early republic precluded a number of people from trying to influence those decisions, though there were certainly those people who would, what we would term today, lobby for certain uh, presidential edicts or congressional decision-making, the sheer scope of it the sheer size of the government in the early republic meant that that was not necessarily the most enterprising way to spend one's time or one's money. Unlike, let's say, 
2020. Jefferson lived another 18 years after his presidency. James Madison, who also died in severe debt, lived 20 years after his second term was completed. Now imagine the writer of the Declaration of Independence and the father of the Constitution hitting the speaking circuit, writing books, or garnering cash donatives from interested foreign governments. To add to the fun, in the case of Jefferson, Madison, and even the fifth president, Monroe, they all served as Secretary of State, so it would not have been difficult to polish the old Rolodex and go hat in hand to ambassadors from all over the world looking for influence. Yet, they did not have those opportunities, and nor did their families. The concept of utilizing governmental connections to make money is not quite new. One can imagine a Chinese Zhou dynasty official giving his son a lucrative bridge-crossing assignment, or an Egyptian 4th Dynasty architect was trying to maybe take a little off the top of one of Pharaoh Khufu's stone quarries. But because the early Republic governmental structure was small, enterprising individuals would look elsewhere than even ex-presidents for which to spend their money. As of this writing, Hunter Biden, the son of presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden, is very much in the news. The younger Biden was awarded a board seat with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma, while his father was overseeing the region for the Obama administration. As cataloged by Kyle Long, a writer for the National Review, Joe Biden's family has the look of impropriety about it. As Long notes of Biden's son, quote, While Joe was overseeing the U.S. response to Russian actions in Ukraine, a $50,000 a month gig on the board of Ukrainian gas firm Burisma, happened to fall into the lucky Hunter Biden's lap. In 2013, Joe even took Hunter on Air Force Two to China, where son introduced dad to a Chinese businessman and, 12 days later, found himself a board member of that businessman's new private equity fund with a 10% stake, unquote. Not to be outdone, Biden's brother was also part of familial largesse. Quote, when Joe Biden was overseeing the U.S. occupation of Iraq in 2011, by sheer coincidence, one of Jimmy Biden's companies secured a $1.5 billion contract to build housing there, unquote. And even Joe Biden's sister got in on the act with, quote, public speaking fees and such gambits as a 2013 junket to Azerbaijan funded by a state oil company. Unquote. Joe Biden claims not to be aware of his son's business interests. This feels very foggy, and to use current vernacular, a little swampy, especially given the fact that Burisma gave a board seat to a person without significant foreign experience, without significant energy knowledge, nor really a strong knowledge of the local economics of the nation of Ukraine. In fact, Really, the only thing, the only thing to recommend Hunter Biden sitting on that board was his relationship to his father. Now, is there a direct correlation of that today? No, but as I said before, the whole thing feels just very, very swampy. And it is not just direct payments such as these, nor is it even one party. Dick Cheney used his influence and experience to secure a highly lucrative job running one of the world's largest oil equipment companies. 
Clinton and Obama official and former mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel sandwiched a high-paying gig with investment banking firm Wasserstein Perella between his political assignments. In the 20th century, many of the presidents came into office wealthy, ranging from Teddy Roosevelt to JFK. The temptations for sitting presidents have been somewhat circumscribed, mainly in these circumstances. And had not Michael Bloomberg, for example, been gutted like a fish on the debate stage by Elizabeth Warren during the Democratic 2020 primaries, it is hard to see President Bloomberg dipping his wick in governmental largesse. Consider this about Bloomberg. Donald Trump is worth $3 billion, roughly, most of it from his ownership of a few selected Manhattan properties. $3 billion is a great deal of money. Michael Bloomberg is worth 16 times that amount. Trump himself is often accused of using the office of president to reward himself and his family. This charge does not really withstand scrutiny. Trump makes money, or did, by building, and today mostly branding, hotels and golf courses. He also has that side gig as a reality TV star. In the past three years, he has not personally done any of those things, and the potential cash in putting his name on a hotel in Dubai is undoubtedly worth far more than even Hunter Biden got from Burisma. Two things have changed since the time of the Virginia dynasty or the early republic. One is, as I have already mentioned, is the size of government is such that it now affects most daily commerce. The platforms are now in place to monetize the influence that people seek on governmental decisions. And this influence is not just in the form of dark alley meetings or suitcases full of cash surreptitiously deposited in the Clinton Foundation's name. In fact, it is right there in the light of day. The fact that Hunter Biden sat on the Burisma board is not a secret. Joe Biden acknowledges it. He says he knew about it, but had no real knowledge about the business dealings or why particularly Hunter was put on that board in the first place. But nevertheless, it's all public record. And that knowledge has not in any way fundamentally impacted the success of Joe Biden's current campaign. Again, this stuff is all in the light of day. Unlike the Roosevelts or the Trumps, there are still government officials who are not born into wealth, who will be seeking money in a post-presidential time or any kind of post-official capacity. It is also different when the person rose from humble means to become wealthy before they're seeking high office, as was the case with Herbert Hoover, Herbert Walker Bush, or would have been with Bloomberg if Warren had not inserted a spit and roasted him over open coals. All of these individuals were not necessarily born into great wealth, but achieved wealth prior to their particular runs for the presidency. But what if a president grew up poor and could not make serious money, even if his wife was from a middle-class upbringing? This brings us to the case of William Jefferson Clinton. The way the presidency broke from 1960 through 2000 limited the amount of money a former president could make. Truman's character would not have allowed himself to be used by lobbyists or pitchmen. Eisenhower was one of the few presidents to be world famous before he even considered running for office. JFK, already wealthy, tragically never saw post-presidency. Johnson, 
A man more inclined to make money after his term only lived for four years afterwards. Nixon was in disgrace for much of his post-presidency. Ford was too aware of his integrity, and Reagan's failing health after his term ended in 1988 precluded the spotlight. And, as we have already noted, H.W. Bush was pretty much well-to-do before the presidency. Bill Clinton was the perfect storm for a former president to set the template for a cash grab. He grew up poor. He never really made money, his wife's incredible insight into cattle futures and Arkansas land deals notwithstanding, and had the grasping, no-breaks mentality to just go for it. Here is the five-headed hydra of post-presidential cash grab. One, book deals. Two, speaking fees. Three, influence peddling. Four, foundations. To really, the fourth one is, is to cover up the, uh, the third one. And finally, other media. That's the fifth one. It is estimated that between his leaving the Oval Office and Hillary Clinton's second run for president in 2016, they made over $100 million. That enormous figure, the stuff of star athletes, movie stars, or hedge fund geniuses, translates to over $6 million per year. The Clintons built the world's most immense political Hoover vacuum, turned the setting to high, and sucked for all they were worth. And now that the template has been set by the Clintons, others are going to cash in as well. None of them more than the Democratic successors to the Clinton administration. As I am writing this, I have my Spotify app going. And what should pop up? Quote, the Michelle Obama podcast, unquote, like in prominent big block letters. Obviously, Spotify does not necessarily qualify who's actually looking at their advertisings in this case. Now, the Obamas just don't seem to have that kind of go for it, cash in, whatever we want kind of mentality that the Clintons did. The Clintons completely remind me of the Underwoods portrayed in the semi-fictitious House of Cards. Like the Underwoods, they always have that kind of go for broke, whatever it takes, scruples be damned kind of mentality. The Obamas always managed to put a little bit more of a patina of sort of dignity around their activities. But part of that is, is because they can't. The Obamas have four things going for them that the Clintons could only dream about. First, Barack Obama is the first president since 1988 to win two terms with over 50% of the popular vote in both elections, making him the most popular president since Ronald Reagan. Second, Michelle Obama has that false patina being above the fray of politics, more Oprah Winfrey than Maxine Waters. Though Michelle Obama is as much of a politician and is as progressive as her husband, she was not sullied by the process of running for office. So both Obamas, for different reasons, have an extremely high degree of charisma. And part of that charisma is the third reason. They contain an appearance of youth. Forbes has a 40 under 40, but no 70 over 70 in their annual issues. People love AOC not because of her towering intellect (laughs) or political insights, but because she is young and attractive in addition to being outspoken. Though the Obamas are both in their 50s, neither appear so. If you suggest that Michelle Obama was at least 10 years younger than her current 56, few will gainsay that unless they know better. 
Americans are obsessed with youth. And the Obamas pretty much kind of fit the bill, especially compared with any living former president or first lady of today. It also never hurts to have height. Brock is a relatively tall six feet one inch, just three inches shorter than Lincoln himself. But Michelle is 5'11". It is striking that when she stands with a group of women, she literally towers over them. Think height doesn't matter? Consider that our consensus two greatest presidents stand, quote unquote, respectively is number one and number four when it comes to height. And fourth for the Obamas, they were already popular uh, before 2020. However, the murder of George Floyd, an African-American man at the hands of a white police officer, touched off civil rights protests that have been continued for nearly five months after the initial murder. As the first African-American president, Barack Obama is uniquely qualified to comment on such matters such as civil rights. His actual reticence in not speaking more on these issues is actually what is surprising. As far as I can tell, the Obamas are the only presidential couple to have a movie made about their courtship. This is titled Southside With You well, and made while Barack Obama was still in office. The Obamas have the requisite book deals, but Michelle Obama's becoming is something else. This book is more a celebrated author's work than any kind of political tome. Again, more Winfrey than Warren. The Obamas have a Netflix deal and Spotify, as mentioned earlier. And then there is the speaking tour. Barack Obama has been paid as much as $600,000 for a single speech. To put that into perspective, the Jeffersonian debt of 100000 would translate into about $2 million in today's money. Obama could pay that off in a week, in just one week, by doing what politicians love to do best. And this money has not been wasted. Seemingly, having forgotten his climate change concerns or his signing of the Paris Agreement, Obama purchased a $15 million mansion on an island. An island. Though Trump will not need the money, he too will cash in. But in his case, the speaking tours will be more about, well, really the sound of his own voice rather than the unnecessary cash grab. He will also do TV and all kinds of media and love every single minute of it. This writer once saw a presentation from George W. Bush in 2011. He was paid about $80,000 for two hours work, a bargain when compared with the Clintons or the Obamas, but still a lot of money. Yet Bush, he provided a good speech, answered Q&A, and provided photo ops with the audience. And though he seemed to enjoy himself, you could just kind of tell he didn't really revel in the opportunity. A post-presidency of Donald Trump spending hours with adoring fans and getting paid for it will be a form of Trumpian nirvana. It is one of those historical mysteries that the man who introduced the concept of liberty as an aspect of government, really as a governing principle itself, and another man who built the greatest governmental mechanism of all time, both died deeply in debt. But that was the fate of Jefferson and Madison. Donald Trump, already rich when entering office, will get even richer after it. Biden? Well, despite all of his family machinations and all of the largesse that's been thrown around amongst his brother, his sister, his son, and so forth, Joe will not 
have a post-presidency. He will not complete his term, and after his resignation, will not be on the speaking tour. This is not a gleeful statement. I want to be really clear about that. This is a political observation, and I personally derive absolutely no satisfaction from that. Why is that? Because that is the fate that awaits all of us. But not all of us are running for president, and in the case of Biden, it is just a few years, not a few decades, away. And what about the one name that I haven't mentioned in this entire podcast? This would be Biden's running mate, Kamala Harris. In a Biden victory, she will assume the Oval Office once Biden is deemed incapacitated, probably somewhere around 2022 or 2023. And once she is done with her presidency, well, the folks had better get their checkbooks at the ready. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast and would encourage you to check out more of them. They are all housed at www.conservativehistorian.com and we also have our book reviews, essays, columns, and even videos. So check it out. And once again, really appreciate you listening. This is Bell Avis.